Welcome to the New Deal Podcast, May 2021. Have you wondered how the pandemic has affected special education in schools? Today, we speak with Brett Frey to answer some of those questions. Hearings and, and, and multiple briefings that right now we have to start uh, implementing both containment and mitigation. And what was done when you do closing the school is mitigation. We've got to try as best as we can to distance ourselves. We announced a statewide policy for our schools. We did it uh, last March 18th. We said that we were going to close schools all across the state, uh, K-12 and uh, higher education schools. We waived what was called the 180-day requirement, which was the state regulation that schools had to have 180 days of teaching. Schools then transferred to distance learning programs, meal delivery services, child care options for essential workers. That has actually worked out well, not perfectly. And our business and school closures will no longer have a set date to resume normal operations. Until now, I've been saying another two weeks, another two weeks. Now I'm going to leave the uh, date uh, indefinite. We're, we're going to keep our schools and businesses closed. Uh, uh, when, uh, uh, as long as we need to keep them close to keep closed to keep Pennsylvania safe. With regard to our public schools, and Lamont will speak to this uh, a little bit in, in, in a little bit. We have been and are now actively working with districts on extended closure plans to prepare for a potential statewide closure. For some districts, for many, in fact, that time is now. For others. We are working around the clock to ensure that when their time comes, and it is a when and not an if, it is a when and not an if, they will be prepared to provide all critical services for their communities. Hi, I'm here with Brett Fry. He is the Director of Special Education at the Dallastown Area School District in Central Pennsylvania. Mr. Fry has been involved in special education his whole career. He started out as a classroom teacher uh, for students with special needs. He then transitioned um, to a special ed supervisor at a local technical school. Uh, prior to uh, coming to Dallastown, he served there for several years. And then we were lucky about two and a half years ago to have him join our team here at Dallastown uh, Area School District. I'm Kevin Peters. I'm one of the team members of the New Deal, and um, we'll be leading this interview today with Mr. Fry. A couple other things about Mr. Fry. Um, he's been serving, as I said, as the director of special education for a little over two years here. Um, his responsibilities include overseeing approximately 1,400 students uh, receiving special education supports and services uh, here in the district, and also some students that are receiving supports and services outside of the district. In the past few years, our district has experienced almost uh, an average of 100 new students needing special ed supports and services each year. Um, in uh, Mr. Fry's time at Dallastown, he's successfully overseen the transition of several specialized classrooms back to Dallastown from our Lincoln Intermediate Unit. These include autistic support, life skills support, and intensive emotional support. Well, welcome, Mr. Fry. Thank you. 
I want to start with a question submitted by one of our team members, um, Taryn Conroy. She says, what has been the most challenging part of your job since beginning remote learning? Well, I, I think it's time. Um, I think what you run into with remote learning is that, you know, education for many years has been, you know, students come to school, they're graded by, you know, faculty members, staff members who are, you know, care about them, and they're providing them instruction within a typical traditional environment. Um, you know, last March when, you know, we had that, we had the closure due to the pandemic, um, it changed everybody's way of thinking of how can we provide education? How can we provide, you know, what has been like a staple for, you know, years upon years. And, you know, in my, you know, 17 years of education, you know, remote learning has been really just a, like a cyber component where, you know, students will go to cyber and services are provided, but that's a team decision that's made. And this wasn't necessarily a team decision. So um, it, it was kind of a flip of a switch and we were put in a position where we needed to make decisions that were in the best interest of the student. Um, also, we had to balance out, you know, students needs, family needs, staffing needs, and come up with a, you know, come up with a platform that was, you know, that still, you know, provided students access to faith. Um, and that was really like our ultimate goal and purpose was to find that, find that essential piece. Um, so I would say as far as like the most challenging piece, it was how do we deliver faith? How do we provide it with fidelity? Um, how do we provide supports to our students, our staff members, and get them the tools um, that were needed to, to deliver that piece? Um, so, I mean, for me, that, that was probably the biggest thing you know, one of the biggest challenges as we've gone through the last last couple of months, the last year. You mentioned there that um, changing the way you provide supports. Um, one of the questions was, uh, how are the staff, were they ready? And if they, what kind of training or what kind of professional development did they need immediately? And then uh, maybe follow up that with ongoing that may continue after um, the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, were they ready? I, I would say that our staff was resilient, that they stepped up to the challenge that they were willing to do whatever it took to meet the needs of our students. So I, I think that nobody was, I don't think anyone was quite prepared for what we, what we saw last year. But what I will say is that the resiliency and the just the professionalism that we saw from staff members that their willingness to step up to support our students that it may have taken them a time taken them time to process and to come up with a system that met students needs but they were willing to put that time in and be able to to work through that and it's just been an evolution so you see that time and time again where you have you know when, where challenges are thrown at staff members that you know they get into a problem solving mode and they work through that. They're collaborating with parents and other teachers and administrators to try to work through some of these situations. So, you know, obviously I will say that it, it, it took time. It wasn't instantaneous. Some teachers were very, I wouldn't say they were ahead of it, but I would say that they were willing to work together collaboratively to come up with, you know, solutions to meet students' needs. We realize students need a variety of supports and uh, services. One of the most glaring uh, challenges, I think, 
was uh, how do we provide uh, services like occupational therapy and physical therapy uh, to the students who are remote? Um, how were they adapted to be delivered virtually? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we were able to do is we have you know, several of our therapists, including our occupational therapists and physical therapists, work together on development of Google Classroom. And the idea behind it was, you know, initially last year when this was just evolving and as we were kind of progressing through the year, is that they set up asynchronous activities, um, did different modeling as far as different videos to show students and families the activities that they wanted them to do. And then the repeat from that was collaborating with those families through um, like a Google Meets or a Zoom session to be able to um, visually see that they were actually conducting the sessions and working through some of the different, um, different exercises they, that they need to be provided. So it was very, it started, you know, where you had an asynchronous piece where they were working on it for a period of time. And then the teacher would schedule a session um, or the therapist would schedule a session to circle back to see how the, they were doing. Um, there was modeling that was done, but all that was done within a Google Classroom and then shared uh, with the family. And then it, it really evolved into the next school year to where, you know, now therapies, you know, we really had to take a look at like what therapies could be provided, what couldn't be provided. Um, so, you know, going into the school year, there were some IEP meetings that were held for some of our students with some of our bigger needs that weren't able to participate and we modified the IEP to reflect what services they were being provided um, to, to make sure that the family was aware of, you know, if your child's in remote learning, this is what they're going to be provided, you know, from a therapy standpoint. Um, and then, you know, we had the conversation with the family upon the return that we could reinstitute these different levels of service to provide it. But that was a very collaborative process between, you know, the therapists, um, from the district staff as an LEA and then also the classroom teacher. But again, they were still given those asynchronous opportunities and some of those virtual sessions to still support that need, but it wasn't to, um, I shouldn't say it wasn't scratched out. I would say that it was, it was provided in a, provided in an alternative way to provide those services. Uh, I imagine that was extremely challenging in the midst of trying to figure everything else uh, out. Uh, I guess we'll close with this. And, you know, we talked about this a lot, read about it a lot. Uh, the pandemic uh, presented a lot of challenges. Uh, we know it also presented a lot of opportunities. One of the things we talk about is using turbulence to move an organization forward. Uh, last question I'll have for you is, is, you know, what kind of things or what opportunities for um, not just our district, uh, but special education, in itself more globally, uh, what kind of opportunities do you see have um, presented themselves as a result of navigating the pandemic? I, I think like if we look at locally, I think what it, you know, forced our team to do was to be consistent with communication. So we utilize ways to be, one of the things that I, I like to be in buildings and be present and, and go through, that has been really difficult this past year because you know, again, we're dealing with, you know, exposure to other, you know, staff members, whatnot, and we're really trying to, you know, el potentially eliminate any sort of risk of potential exposure from, from, you know, staff members and for students and whatnot. So what we found, you know, and one of those things is how do you be, pre how can you be present 
without being, you know, visible. So that's where communication comes down or comes into play. And one of the things that we did, and I, I have to give, you know, one of my, one of our staff members, you know, Jill, she's an assistant director. We set up a special education dashboard, which basically became our hub of all information, special education wise. Um, and we utilized that in the spring, which was really important for our consistency. That transitioned over to this, this next school year to where we utilize that again and we use that hub of information where all that all of our procedures all the expectations that that would be laid out there but then another piece of that would be i, I send out a weekly email to our staff members as kind of that constant communication where we're you know there's that connection there um if they have questions they're able to ask questions they're able to provide us feedback um and we're able to address those in a timely manner we all know that our time is very valuable and we don't necessarily have the pockets of time that we once had. And in education, that connection with staff members and students are so critical. So you have to have some way of getting that information and being able to respond to it. So responding in a timely manner is an important piece. Um, when you're working through email and whatnot, it's, it's not an ideal situation, but you try to be responsive through those situations. So I think for us, it created a consistency and it created a hub of information. I think as far as from the academic standpoint, um, you know, remote learning done right with the proper supports from families and from the district, it can, we can provide FAPE. We can provide these levels of service, but again, it, it's a shared partnership there between families and school districts. We know that in-person instruction has really great benefits for students. Um, direct instruction is so critical. You know, you look at some of the John Hattie's pieces and look at how, you know, instructors make differences, teachers make differences. Um, that's important to us. So I think as we see, as things evolve, I think what it forces us to take a look at is how do we collect data? How do we use that data to make determinations for students? How do we make recommendations if students aren't necessarily being successful in the placement, just like we would do in person, we have to use data to, to drive decisions on placement. So if we look at in-person versus virtual, we have to look at student data to say, is the student being successful? If they are, great, continue. Let's keep doing what we're doing, view our data, make our decisions. If not, then we gotta look at our data and make recommendations to families if it's important for them to return and, and come back to in-person instruction or at least a level of blended instruction for them. One of the, one of the things that, that I can speak to is just the uh, amount of participation of parents and guardians in IEP meetings this year, uh, strictly due to the fact that they can you know, do them virtually, we can host them virtually. Navigating a, a time during the school day that a parent or guardian can come in and meet, um, all while trying to coordinate that with uh, members' availability presents a lot of challenges. So one of the great things I noticed out of this special ed wise is just that you mentioned building the partnership and it was much um, easier this year and much more effective being able to hold IEP meetings virtually. Uh, although we, we like sitting down face-to-face, -face, be able to have a um, large, large, large percentage of, of meetings being held um, where that might not have in fact, in prior years when we tried to coordinate something here at the building. And so I really appreciate your leadership in making that happen. Yeah. 
And that uh, honestly, like if we step away with one thing that that parent participation, like you said, was is so critical because it, it is that partnership. So if we can take away barriers that allows families to participate and, and I have to give credit to, you know, the state was very, you know, they, they changed the law to allow us to continue to do this, to capture electronic signatures. You know, what, what, what a meeting was, tw well, 24 months ago, we'll say, it looks very different now, but I think we build efficiencies in, and I think that communication and collaboration is still there. And in fact, I think it's even greater to a certain degree because we're utilizing these tools to um, encourage that collaboration and that participation. So that's something I hope that continues from you know, from this standpoint as we move forward. I really want to thank you, Mr. Fry, for uh, spending some time with me today. I, you know, on a, a personal slash professional level, um, Mr. Fry has really changed the face of, of special education here. I'll say at least in middle school, that's my perspective and um, just, just uh, driving the, the department forward and partnering with the staff members here and helping them grow. Um, it's unprecedented. So I want to personally thank you for that, Mr. Fry, and, and all the support you give us here. Thank you, Dr. Peters. It's always uh, great working with the middle school staff. And, you know, we, again, it's a partnership. We work together collaboratively. And um, I, I think that's, that's one of the greater benefits, great benefits of being in a position like this, that, you know, um, we work together to support each other. I've experienced this maybe even in my own career as a teacher, like a general education teacher, which is very than special education teachers or supervisors are so siloed from the rest of the school. I mean, not to not to mention how siloed some teachers get, right? Especially teachers who have been in the profession for a while. You just want to close your door and be left alone and teach class. But yeah, just the disconnect between the daily work of somebody in special education and the daily work of the general education teacher who may see those same special education students, it, it is so profound very often. Um, and so to hear about uh, places where it is more interconnected, where it is uh, definitely like integrated services for the students is, you know, it's nice to hear, that's what I'm saying. And going forward, I like the fact that uh, Mr. Fry was talking about enhancing uh, the communication and the consistency of communication as one big learning from the uh, turbulence that they're experiencing. It was kind of like that's a backbone of kind of, to use the words of politics today, uh, an infrastructure issue. In this case, it's a backbone of consistent communication is a kind of infrastructure to make everything else possible. And he was paying attention to that. So he was, I thought, quite strategic in his discussions and think, looking at, a, at the big picture and uh, even though obviously there's tons of, of, of very difficult, naughty details to deal with as well. I thought he was really consistent, strong uh, and uh, constructive thinking. I was impressed. I, I also felt optimistic after the interview. Um, the fact that communication, which is something that's free, it's something the cost effective, it's something viable, that's still, um, 
remains a, a wonderful way to work through turbulence and make important changes. Um, so that's a very, I feel that's a very optimistic sort of um, learning, uh, you know, that that communication um, can help us adapt. I would agree with that. And I'm sure many of us have worked in settings where there's been really good communication and very poor communication. I know I have. And I know when I'm in a setting where, you know, we're as educators and as a team constantly in communication about our students, because I feel like there's so much that you can talk about and plan for that you just, you can feel it. Like it, it really, to me, like impacts culture um, and I mean, I feel like it makes a huge difference in the success we see with our students just because of the communication and the cohesiveness of the team around them. What I saw too was the collaboration. And uh, it was clear that the principal, in this case, Dr. Peters and Mr. Fry really had a very, very nice collaborative relationship. Uh, and that struck me as very, very important. And too often, there's this distance between uh, the administration and, and someone who is highly specialized, but it didn't seem to be the case here at all. The backbone, isn't it, of, of New Deal leadership um, within our vision statements is really creating um, stakeholders, making people feel that they're part of a team um, you know, making sure that they have ownership over, you know, their domain and also that they're communicating and, and doing outreach with, with others in the same organization. And I think that this interview really shows those New Deal values um, in, in terms of, of leadership, especially in turbulent times. I think it said a lot about you, Kevin, as a New Deal leader about me. This podcast is not, not about Kevin Peters. You know, it's not, no, nice try, Dr. Gross. But, I, it is, but it is about the principal right. and the special education. So it's your role. Right. Uh, and that those two roles were collaborative and that that's wonderful. Right. Okay, take compliment, Kevin. There. <laughs> What did I do? It's not about me. Me. About me. This is the punchiest podcast so far. Wow. Okay. Now it's time for What's the Big Deal? In this segment, we take questions from you, the listeners, submitted on um, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, where you ask questions for our New Deal team. So this is our first question. And it says, I'd like to know how schools plan to get our students re even reasonably caught up in their studies after a year of struggle. So I can share uh, 
what my organization is doing uh, in anticipation of just that. Um, unfortunately, this year, like many school systems, we've had quite a bit of um, course failures and um, chronic absenteeism to date. Uh, so what we are doing, we are extending the school year for the remaining portion of the year, um, uh, about an hour, uh, where uh, students can receive uh, some support in terms of math and literacy. Uh, additionally, we are broadening our credit recovery options for students that would um, take place out of school time during the summer session and um, uh, also providing some instructional support along with that um, kind of online credit recovery program. I've seen some things like in the Philadelphia Inquirer talking about um, all the learning that's been lost and, and how tough this is going to be for kids. And, you know, I think that it's a lot of backwards thinking. Um, lost how? What are we catching up to? The entire world was affected by a pandemic. And the idea that we're so concerned that kids might not learn their multiplication tables on time to pass standardized exams is extremely short-sighted. I mean, the reason that I think we have so many kids failing out this year is shows the real problems that we have in our system, shows what happens when kids are uh, dealing with trauma and, and loss and grief and poverty. And isn't it a better time just to look at our school systems and say, what are we learning from this? And how do we move forward? Instead of saying, let's make a big rush to catch up at this point for all the things that we've lost. I know there's been some recent work that has looked at um, certain groups of students that have um, shouldered that burden disproportionately of, of sort of lost instructional time. Um, I know one, um, uh, there's been some recent work um, about um, our ELL students who, um, many of which I can say anecdotally in my own school system, uh, th there was months that we had not seen um, some of our limited English students and families. Uh, so that was concerning. Um, I, I do agree with you, Susie. Um, you know what? You know what is the standard of kind of lost instructional time? Um, and on on the flip side, you know there there is the loss of educational opportunity represented by um, that kind of week after week after week of absence. Um, uh, so I, I know that that's been a been a concerning kind of um, uh, trend throughout the year. Uh, and really starting in spring of 2020. I think you both are kind of alluding to something important that we really are having trouble even defining what learning loss means. Um, and that looks different for different groups of people. One of the things that I've been hearing potentially popping up over the summer, different learning centers. Um, and again, like this idea of a learning center, a learning pod to catch students up but again, that goes back to what are we catching them up to and what are we catching them up for? And have we addressed and are we remembering to tend to their emotional needs as well? Um, we have you know, a large percentage of students that have not even set foot on, on a campus or in school in person. And um, 
you know, I'm really getting a sense of beyond the academics that there's some emotional needs that we're definitely going to need to be tending to over the course of, you know, well, the remainder of this year and over the course of this summer as schools begin to open up even more next year. So I hope that, you know, educators, um, you know, people in places of making decisions are certainly keeping in mind how much we need to be taking care of our students socially and emotionally as well as academically, because it's not all about the academic loss that's occurred over this past year. It's about much more than that. And when this we start- example, This is one example, I think, of one size fits all being a terrible idea. It's always a terrible idea, but it's especially terrible now. And the one size fits all, idea of testing and you know standardizing everything and mechanizing everything in the machine metaphor when we have this whole incredible range and continuum of people who are you know everybody's been traumatized to a certain extent everybody but then there are degrees of trauma i think and um we have to change from a system that deals pretty much especially the larger systems in a, in a mechanical way to one that's much more organic and much more empathetic and much more listening and much less telling, at least at least at the start. And so I think like from, from the, the team's perspective, the skills that are in this team, whether they're the school uh, counselor perspective, the school leader, the higher education person, you know, whatever it is, we need all those voices and many, many more. And time's short, that's the problem. The good news might be that there are resources coming to schools that were not anticipated even a few months ago from the federal government. So there's that opportunity. And the question is, will we use them wisely or just in the same old fashioned way? More of the same is just not gonna cut it, I don't think. And as a parent, you know, the fact that they're going to be having um, more school over the summer when children still can't be vaccinated does not make me feel warm and fuzzy. It makes me feel like here's another opportunity that my children will not have a chance to use because I know that in New York City, those public schools are old. The HVAC systems are awful. Every day I get a notice that there's another case. I'm not sending my children when they're not vaccinated to a place that I don't think is safe. And it's not gonna be any safe over the summer, safer over the summer where CBOs get involved that don't have, the, uh, sorry, community-based organizations where there's no check on the HVAC units. And we're gonna be putting them into spaces that are even less regulated. Um, it, it worries me. And I know that it's another opportunity that many of us who have kids who need some handholding in terms of academics and uh, social, the social aspect are not gonna be able to take advantage of. All right, so we also have as a, a follow-up to this question, um, if there's gonna be any room for creativity um, when we're talking about catching children up? Or will this lead to the same kind of instruction and testing? And will this um, extended day and extended uh, school year lead to permanent changes? I wanna make a maybe a cynical comment, which is um, this idea of catching students up for things that they've missed, it, I think is largely driven by our over-reliance on standardized testing and over-reliance on, on the existing formats of these curriculums that force students essentially to cram a bunch of stuff that they might not need to know into these years of school. Because it's still based on this concept, I think that that's what we're going to end up reverting back to 
when we want to catch people up. How much of this stems from our working from the outside in instead of from the inside out? By that, I mean, we're always saying like generically, here's what has to happen in the curriculum and everybody needs all of this, you know, coursework, et cetera. It, the alternative, and I think especially now would be, let's start, what if we started with the individual? Here, here we've got, you know, uh, different people with different backgrounds and different needs and different interests. And what if we constructed a learning program from the individuals and build it out as opposed to saying everybody needs to be batch processed. Mm. We trained ourselves and have worked consistently and, and I, I would say systematically in error uh, by batch processing for, for all these years. This is kind of preeminently the time to turn our back on that, but it's gonna mean really listening to people as individuals. And we could do it. The, the tragedy isn't that we can't do it. The tragedy is that we can do it and we're likely not going to do it. But to circle back to the original question, I think that this illustrates really, really well that like this really takes away any opportunity for creativity. If we're setting standards in place to say we want everybody to reach the same standard, be able to learn in the same way or learn the same thing. I mean, right there, we're setting people up not to be able to explore creativity, which I think is so important. We've been talking as a faculty recently about like mindsets and skills that we think our students will need, you know, in the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And the one thing that just keeps coming to mind for me is like allowing them to be curious and creative because that that that's where like the innovation is and exploring and failing and trying again. And um, when we set these standards up and say, no, we really, this is what we are going to be testing on this is what we want you to achieve well then where is the creativity in that and where's the exploration and where's the opportunity to fail and try again and learn you know it's just it's yeah it's hard all right well i want to thank you for um being part of what's the big deal if you would like to submit some questions you can do so on twitter linkedin or facebook Thank you for joining us on the New Deal podcast. Be sure to join our mailing list on the podcast's homepage.